Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, we're back today and today we are going to talk about one of the tax highlights of what might be an otherwise quiet 2023. That's the recent release of the administration's fiscal year 2024 Green Book. That's the document that outlines the administration's major legislative tax policy priorities for the coming year. You know, if you listened to our last episode, it was all about goodbyes, as we wished a fond farewell to our friend, Carol. But today's episode is all about hellos, because today we are joined by two new voices on this podcast, Monisha Santamaria and Dan Winnick. Both Monisha and Dan recently joined us from Capitol Hill. Monisha was legislative counsel at the Joint Committee on Taxation, and Dan was tax counsel to the Ways and Means Committee. Both were deeply involved in all tax legislation produced by Congress over the last several years, including the emergency COVID legislation, as well as what ultimately became Build Back Better, and in the case of Dan, also the Inflation Reduction Act. So Dan and Monisha, happy to have two of the smartest tax lawyers on Capitol Hill in this building and also on this podcast. Welcome. All right, Dan, my first question is for you, because not only did you work on Capitol Hill at the Ways and Means Committee, you also worked at Treasury in the Office of Tax Policy, probably had some experience in helping develop green books in the past. So let me start with what I think is a reasonable question. Many people are asking, why bother, right? It was a different story in the last two green books where we had Democratic control of the House, the Senate and the White House. There was a lot of tension on these green books, but with divided control of Congress and probably minimal prospects for these proposals becoming law, why does the administration bother to put out a green book into this scenario? Thanks, John. That's a question a lot of people are asking. I think that there are several reasons why the administration puts out a green book, even when the administration is unlikely to see many of its legislative proposals move forward or doesn't have a vehicle for all of its legislative proposals to move forward in a such as a reconciliation bill. The Green Book is an opportunity for the administration to put out its ideas for tax policy that might move either this year or in the future. So it kind of serves as a shelf for putting out proposals that it believes in. It's also the first step in negotiations if there is a need to do tax now or in the future. So it's kind of the administration's opening bid in, in its attempt to start the conversation with Congress. But green books serve as kind of a shelf and often when people on the Hill are looking at what they're going to do next, they'll take a look at both the current and past green books from both administrations as one source for ideas. So let me ask you this. You were at the Ways and Means Committee during the last two Green Books. You were one of the lead drafters of what ultimately became Build Back Better. How influential was the first administration Green Book in encouraging Congress to think a certain way about what ultimately became Build Back Better? Was it very important or just sort of tangentially influential? I think the Green Book's just one piece of the puzzle because Green Book proposals aren't drafted in legislative language. They're drafted instead as ideas, and they have attached to them a revenue estimate that might have more assumptions built into it. But often the Green Book proposals will leave certain points unsaid or avoid topics where there might not be consensus in the administration. And so Often the Green Book is just one starting point. And during the process of working on what ultimately became Build Back Better in the House, 
there were conversations between the House staffers and the administration, both at a leadership level and at a technical level, and also with our Senate colleagues. So often when you're in a reconciliation posture, which is not what we have this Congress, there still are conversations going on between all three branches. And the Green Book is really only one piece of that puzzle and often doesn't have all of the elements in it. I think those kind of conversations are even more true when you have divided government. And we know that there might not even be agreement on the fundamental But even when all three, the House, the Senate, and the presidency are held by the same party, you still have different points of view. And so the Green Book is just the beginning of a conversation. That's such a good point. There is such a wide difference between a proposal and a broad general proposal like we get in the Green Book and actually writing legislation. The proposal in the Green Book might answer 10 questions, but to turn that into legislative draft, There's hundreds of new questions and policy decisions that have to be made along the way. So it's a really good point that it may, maybe it's not obvious on the outside, but when you take something that's a general vague idea and try and draft it, it is so much more complicated to draft it. Yeah. All right. So speaking of drafting. Yeah, go ahead, Monisha. And I think the conversation we're starting right now is a conversation as to what will be on the table for 2025, which seems to be a point in the future where we can look to having real tax legislation. Exactly. And I do think this is important to set that dialogue now as to what 2025 looks like, which is another important point, Monisha. So, Monisha, let me then turn to you because we talked about drafting and, you know, your time at the Joint Committee obviously was involved in drafting quite a few things. You worked more on, let's say, the domestic side. So we'll leave maybe some of the international side for Dan. But let's just come back to this year's the FY 2024 Green Book. Talk to me or us about what you viewed as new or at least notable in this year's Green Book, if any. Well, I think the biggest picture point is that what was in the Greenberg is generally what we've seen before. There are a host of ideas from Build Back Better, the host of ideas from prior year Greenbergs at a high level. It was a collection of ideas we've seen. I think there are a couple things in the pass-throughs individual space that I see as noteworthy. First, there was a proposal in last year's Greenberg that taxed the income of certain higher income individuals at ordinary income rates instead of capital gains rates if the income would traditionally qualify for capital gains rates. Last year's Greenberg had a rule that was viewed as retroactive in that the proposal was effective from the date of announcement. This year's Greenberg limits the proposal to post-enactment capital gains, so that change will potentially make some a little bit happy or, or less upset. Why do you think they made the change? Do you think, I mean, do you think they reflected upon the prior year's policies? You know, that wasn't such a good mm-hmm. idea. Let's make it more prospective. Or do they think, eh, maybe it doesn't matter that much. We'll leave it to Congress. It's usually Congress's option on effective dates, and maybe they're just going to leave it to Congress. What do you think? Or should we not read too much into it? I would have been surprised if that change had come into being over the last year, if the date that was proposed in the Greenbrook became law, Congress generally has an aversion to making anti-taxpayer proposals retroactive. So a retroactive proposal would have been incredibly surprising to me. I think it's just a suggestion that political realities do weigh in to all conversations. And this is just a sign that there will be lots of compromises before any of this becomes law or close to it. So then on the domestic side, we're looking at what we saw largely in Build Back Better and in prior Green Books. Increased individual rates on high earners, 
course, corporate rate, going back to proposing the 28% corporate rate, et cetera. And do you think that's because they feel like they've done everything they wanted to do on the domestic side? Or is it, do you think the reason why they did not propose anything new again is because it's a reflection of the reality of this divided Congress that is probably not going anywhere anytime soon? What do you think? Do we know? I think it's a combination of lots of things. I think the 117th Congress, the last Congress, proposed many, many, many trillions of dollars in revenue raisers impacting domestic businesses, individuals, and flow-through entities as well. And those ideas still exist. Ideas on the Hill don't die. So all those ideas that are floating out there are on the table for the future, and the Green Book put together a collection of those ideas. I don't think ideas that did make it their way into the Green Book are off the table either. So I think there are plenty of potential revenue raisers that taxpayers need to be thinking about as we inch towards 2025. All right, Dan, so they only to ask you that same question. Let's focus on international, but whatever you want to refer to. But same answer in your case, you know, nothing terribly new or, or a lot of recycle or were there notably new things this year? I think for the most part on the corporate international side, the revenue raisers that are proposed are ones that we've seen before. On the international side, the revenue raisers are very familiar compared to last year's Green Book and the Green Book that was in 2020 proposed for fiscal year 2022. I think it's notable that this year's Green Book picked up explicitly some of the changes to guilty that were in the House Pass Build Back Better bill, such as allowing same country foreign tax credit and loss carry forwards. As an income inclusion rule, though, the administration's proposal still would impose tax at a 21% rate, which is higher than the 15% rate that was agreed as a minimum tax in the Pillar 2 income inclusion rule. So this proposal still would tax U.S.-based multinationals at a higher rate than foreign-based multinationals under the Pillar 2 minimum tax. The proposal to adopt a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax at QDMTT alongside a UTPR, which we also saw in last year's Green Book, is remarkable, I think, in light of the Inflation Reduction Act corporate alternative minimum tax. Both the QDMTT and the corporate alternative minimum tax would impose minimum taxes based on book income on U.S. income But after that, they're pretty different. The corporate alternative minimum tax that just recently passed in the Inflation Reduction Act explicitly limits the application of the minimum tax where companies have a low tax rate because of U.S. tax credits or because of certain U.S. tax incentives, most notably bonus depreciation. Limiting the benefit of certain U.S. tax incentives to satisfy the Pillar 2 minimum tax really runs contrary to where the last Congress landed on this issue. So it'll be interesting to see how that proposal is received. No, I mean, some of these revenue raisers go back to the Clinton administration proposal. I think our colleague Jenna Cunha would tell you that when they were drafting the TCJA, they scoured past screen books of Republican and Democratic administrations looking for potential revenue raisers. So it's right. These things are out there forever. One last question for you, Dan. This is intended for what audience? The international stuff in particular. Is it Congress? Is it taxpayers? Do you think there's a chance that part of the perceived audience here were other countries, especially those participating in the OECD project, uh, BEPS 2.0, to let them know that the administration is still staying the course on where they want to get to on Pillar 1, Pillar 2 in particular? I think that's an astute observation, John. This is certainly one opportunity that the administration has to communicate its continued commitment to the two-pillar project, especially to Pillar 2. 
I think that folks in foreign countries, certainly folks who represent foreign countries at the OECD, have come to understand more about United States parliamentary procedures and our system of separation of powers than they understood in the past and the limits of the administration in proposing legislation, the limit in the administration's power to have that legislation adopted by Congress. And so, while I think that this is intended to show the administration's continued commitment, I think that they are aware of the limits of the administration through the formal Green Book process in directing legislation in the near term. Yeah, if they're not aware that the U.S. system is a little different than most of the world by now, having gone through Build Back Better, et cetera, then they haven't been paying very close attention. Fair enough. All right, Monish, let me ask you a question. We've got a few more minutes left here. Attached to the Green Book are revenue estimates, but these are revenue estimates that come from Treasury. You know, would this particular proposal raise revenue or lose revenue and to what extent? As we know, with legislation, the official scorekeepers are where you used to work, the Joint Committee of Taxation. So question about revenue estimates, because they matter a lot. You know, if, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing for the money, as they say. Will JCT score these proposals in the Green Book? And should we assume that they would be necessarily different than we saw the revenue estimates in the Green Book? Revenue estimates from Treasury and JCT are independent as important background information. Historically, JCT has put out its own revenue table with respect to Green Book proposals in the president's budget. Sometimes that comes months and months after the budget is released. I think it came out in the summer last year with respect to the prior year budget. So I would expect to see a JCT revenue estimate in the not so near future, probably. I do think the JCT score could be significantly different from the scores we see in the budget. There are different assumptions, different inputs, different interactive effects between how these things, it's perfectly reasonable to assume that they wouldn't be identical, but it's also possible. I mean, right, Monisha, sometimes they're not just a little bit off, right? They're significantly off in terms of how they might be viewed, and that would affect how Congress might act or not act on any of these. Yes. I mean, the baselines won't be identical. The assumptions won't be identical. Revenue estimating is an art, not a science, especially when there are a lot of unknowns and known unknowns and unknown unknowns. So I would expect that at least one of the scores would be vastly different. Yeah, I think that's right. All right, one last question, and I'll ask you, Dan. And it's not about what's in the Green Book. It's about what's not, I think, in the Green Book. And it's the topic that we hear about the most. Section 174, right? The rule uh, regarding the deductibility or the amortization of R&E costs, not in the Green Book this year. Some would say last year it was sort of in the Green Book because remember the way the Green Book was set up last year. It assumed Build Back Better was enacted and then did other stuff. Build Back Better had a four-year delay of the amortization rule, I think it was. And so in a backhanded way, it appeared that maybe the administration was endorsing that. But this year, as far as I can tell, there's no reference to Section 174. So what should we make of all that? Or am I making too much of it that maybe it is in there somewhere? It's just hard to tell. Well, I think you're right that sometimes what's most interesting is what's absent rather than what's present in a document like this. The administration proposed repealing the provisions dealing with FDII, foreign-derived intangible income, and they indicate in that proposal that they would like to see the revenue raised from that repeal put back into incentives for our research and development. One incentive for research and development you could imagine would be restoring 
uh, deductibility of Section 174. Now, there are a couple of reasons why they may not have said it explicitly. One is they might know that that would be unsatisfying because uh, 174 was uh, until very recently kind of baked into people's idea of what they should already have. And there have been many provisions that have been extended or lumped into extenders and not paid for. So you could imagine that just not being very appealing and for that reason being less of a R&D incentive that would get people on board with what's already a difficult proposal. Another might be just that the revenue doesn't add up. So if you're trying to pair proposals like that and one costs a lot more than the other or one costs more and the other would raise more revenue, they just might not go together. The R&D proposal in particular has the effect of if it's temporarily extended, the way that it's scored is that that's a expenditure in near years and then that's projected to reverse after the extension date. Whereas if you do it on a permanent basis, it's a very expensive provision. And so that sort of complicated scoring dynamic around 174 might make it not very amenable to the budget because while Congress is very happy to do um, medium-term extenders. That's not traditionally something that goes into the president's budget. So 174 is one area we didn't see. We also didn't see any mention of 163J, though you'll note that the administration did revive the recommendation on 163N that was included in the House passed Build Back Better as well as the House passed TCJA. So that remains an idea that's out there. So we're seeing proposals to tighten rather than loosen interest deductibility. Similarly, nothing discussed on bonus depreciation, which also has recently expired. So there are a lot of provisions that you could have imagined being discussed in a green book, but business provisions you could imagine discussed in a green book, but they were not discussed in this year's budget or the last Biden administration budget. Well, then let me just ask you one last question before we go then. If the proposal for an enhanced R&D incentive, as you referenced, the unspecified, if it's not 174, what else would it be? Do we have any idea what else it could be? I really don't. You can imagine something related to Section 41. There certainly have been murmurings around maybe we could get around the threat of other countries under tax profits rules by making the R&D credit refundable. The UTPR is, in a way, another interesting provision in this year's budget proposal because the administration proposes repealing the base erosion and anti-abuse tax and replacing it with an under-tax profits rules compliant with what's in the Pillar 2 proposal. By contrast, during the Secretary's testimony last week, many congressional Republicans questioned the UTPR, its compatibility with U.S. treaties and international law, and seemed very skeptical of the UTPR. So provisions that make U.S. law more UTPR compatible even if they're beneficial to U.S. companies, might face an uphill road on the hill. But really, I think that the lack of specification there speaks for itself. We just don't know, and we didn't know last year either. Yeah, that's fair, fair enough. And I guess we can continue to speculate, and who knows? We'll probably get the same, exact same language in next year's Green Book, uh, unless Congress acts between now and then, which doesn't seem terribly likely. Well, first of all, Monisha, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciated your commentary. And I promise you, we're going to have you back in the future as we continue to break down what else may be in the Green Book or other things that develop over the course of the year. So thank you very much. That's all we have time for today. In closing, let's just finish with the topic I asked Dan about. 
consider this a preemptive answer since I know so many people are asking this question already. So I'm sure you are too. What should we make of the administration not including Section 174 relief in the Green Book? Well, I think we mostly answer that here today. It might actually be there in the book if you're an optimist and if you look at that unspecified R&D incentive that Dan mentioned. But then you might ask, why not just call it out specifically if everybody thinks it's good policy and if it has bipartisan support? Well, I think part of the reason that Treasury did not do that is negotiating strategy. If you remember how tax extender negotiations went last December, Democrats were insisting on an enhancement to the child tax credit in exchange for giving Republicans Section 174. Republicans made many arguments against this trade, but one of them included that this whole argument that it was a Republican ask, or at least a purely Republican ask, was not quite true. As Republicans pointed out that Section 174 relief had been in Build Back Better, a bill that almost every House Democrat voted for. So putting it all in that context, it sort of makes sense for the administration to call for the child tax credit here specifically in the Green Book, but then not call for 174. This then putting the onus back on Republicans at the negotiating table, if a deal comes together. Now the question is, will that deal come together? Well, not anytime soon, it appears. It may well have to wait for the September 30th federal fiscal year end and the great number of things that are likely to happen then, including funding the federal government, FAA reauthorization, the farm bill, possibly dealing with an extension of the debt limit. That would be a possible time that we could see this, or even later in the year. So would it be better for taxpayers if the administration had straight out called for repeal of the 174 amortization rule? Sure, it would have been, obviously. But is it fatal that they did not do that? No, not at all. So where does that leave us? Well, as has been the case with Section 174 for some time now, the song remains the same. Maybe someday. But until then, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and your suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.